Amen. Good evening. Good to see you this evening. I was going to use a chair, but let me go back to Sunday. I haven't tested that. I haven't tried that. I can't preach the word of God and be sitting down. I, I, I can't do that. So Acts chapter 7 tonight. Acts chapter 7 tonight. We are going to look at Stephen, the church's first martyr tonight. And again, this is emphasizing the difference that the Holy Spirit of God makes in our lives. Now, one other thing before we get into the passage tonight. This is a transitional moment in the story of Acts in the early church. God wanted to make sure that people understood that the church was not an extension of Judaism, that the church was a completely new and different entity, and it was breaking away from any connection with Judaism, okay? In fact, that's why the religious leaders of Israel were attacking Stephen and charging him with speaking against the temple in Jerusalem and, and speaking against the law of Moses. And when you come to chapter 7, Stephen is going to defend his position on those things by using the very scriptures that these religious leaders claim to know and believe and embrace. And so before we get into the, the sermon of Stephen, and it's what takes up the most space in Acts chapter 7, we're not going to spend the majority of our time on the sermon. It's a great sermon. In fact, for pastors and preachers, it's one of the portions of Scripture that they use in seminary as an example and model of a good message, okay? But I want to get to the end of the chapter. When Stephen lays down his life for his Savior, that's what I want to concentrate on. Because I believe that God wants to use this passage tonight to fill all of us with his strength and his encouragement and his comfort no matter what we're going to face in life. And I don't know about you, but I will probably never be stoned to death. I will probably never experience that horrific of a death. And when you and I see how triumphantly Stephen faced that kind of death, then take the argument from the greater to the lesser. Anything else that you and I are going to deal with in life compared to what Stephen went through is probably a little bit less intense. And yet he was an ordinary young man just like we are. And yet it was because he was filled with the Holy Spirit that he was able to navigate that time in his life in such a remarkable and extraordinary and inspiring way. So with that said, here's what I want to jump into in chapter 7. Again, Stephen's defense against the charges leveled against him. And he picks out four periods in Jewish history. And he singles out the period of Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and David and Solomon. And he first defends why he spoke against the specific location, or I'll use this term tonight, zip code of Jerusalem. You see, the religious leaders of Israel put God in a box. We must not do that. And, and 
what they did is say basically Jerusalem is the only place where God's truly going to manifest himself and move and work and all of that and that the temple in Jerusalem is really the only place of worship, the only place where God connects with his people, the only place where God walks with his people. And Stephen, in a sense, is saying to the religious leaders of Israel, you don't know your Old Testament, do you? Because notice, first of all, Stephen points out in verse 2 that God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia and Haran. It wasn't Jerusalem. And then he goes over in chapter 7, verse 17, and says, oh, by the way, guess where God was working on and with and through Joseph? 17, in Egypt. And then if you jump over to verse 30, where did God appear to Moses? And, and where was God working when he was working with Moses? In the desert of Mount Sinai. You see, Stephen is saying, you are limiting God to a certain zip code. And God is bigger than that. And he's greater than that. And none of us should try to put God in that kind of a box. If we understand even the God of the Old Testament, we understand he wanted to reach the world back then. That's why he sent prophets to Gentile nations like Jonah to Nineveh and others. God was always reaching out. People like Ruth and all of them through, dotted through the Old Testament. God wasn't only concerned with the Jew. He was calling all nations and all peoples and all people groups to him. And he's doing the same thing today. So then Stephen sort of brings his message to a climax about the place of worship when he uses the words of David and Solomon. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 47. Solomon built a house for God, yet the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. And then he quotes, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool for my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things in the universe? God's big. And, and they were trying to shove God into a phone booth. God isn't going to go into a phone booth. And the more you and I try to put God in our little boxes and, and our phone booths and all of that, God's going to burst out. And he's going to show us, I will not be confined to your parameters, to your boundaries. And we as a church, we need to hear that as well. Because when God wants to do fresh and new things and bring new people in and work in new ways, we've got to be open to those things. Nothing wrong with the old traditions and good things, but we've always got to be open to God wants to do fresh and new things in our life personally and in the life of our church. And that's what Stephen was trying to get across to the religious leader. Isn't it tragic that these were the men who were supposed to be leading the nation of Israel in the worship of God, and they totally missed it, missed it. The other thing that they accused Stephen of was that he was speaking against the law of Moses. And his retort to that was, look, I'm not speaking against the law. It's just that you have a wrong perspective on the purpose of the law and why God gave the law. He never gave the law so that you and I or anyone could adhere to the law, try to live up to the law, and be righteous through the law. 
The law was given to show all mankind that we are all sinners and all of us fall short of the glory of God. Yet again, the Israelites, especially the religious leaders, they were all about good works and earning, you know, your salvation and earning your merit and your place with God. So notice, Stephen says to them in verse 52 of chapter 7, then why did the prophets talk about the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, who he believed is Jesus, the one that you killed? Why does God need to send Messiah, a righteous one, if we can attain our righteousness through the law? The coming of the righteous one was to show the deficiency of the law in bringing men to righteousness. It is an x-ray that we are held up to to show us what's wrong, but it can do nothing to make us right. Only the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ can do that. That's what Stephen was pointing out. Well, obviously, Stephen wasn't afraid to tell it like it is either. Notice what he says to the religious leaders in verse 51. You stubborn people, headstrong, obstinate. Oh, we've got to be careful that we don't become like that. That we always become pliable and compliant in the Lord's hands. That's why I love that picture in the Old Testament of the potter and the clay. And that God wants to mold us. He wants to mold our church. He wants to mold us. But he wants us to be workable and, and willing for him to do what he wants to do in our lives. The religious leaders of Israel had stiffened their necks and hardened their hearts against God. Notice he also describes them as those with uncircumcised hearts and ears. What's that mean? It means their soul and their senses are closed off to God. They're not sensitive to God. They're not responding to God the way they should. Again, a good reminder for us that we don't start closing down and closing ourselves off to what God wants to do in our lives, what he wants to say to us in our lives, what he wants to show us in our lives, what he wants us to be a part of. May we never be closed off and closed-minded when it comes to what the Lord wants to do. And then the final sort of nail in their spiritual coffin, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. Literally, fighting against the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you, I know exactly what that's like, and I'm sure you do too. Because there were times in my life where I fought the Holy Spirit. You know some of those times, because I've shared them with you. We all, even as followers of God, at times find ourselves fighting with the Holy Spirit. We know what the Holy Spirit's leading us to do, what he's telling us to do, and, and we just keep fighting against it instead of surrendering and giving in to the Holy Spirit. That's why the New Testament talks about us not grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit when he's working. Again, going back to being pliable and compliant with the Holy Spirit. And isn't it interesting that here are all these men, the religious leaders of Israel, that Stephen says, you're fighting against the Holy Spirit, but then you've got a lot of the early church who are full of the Holy Spirit. What a contrast. And we're going to see that here in just a moment. When they heard these things, verse 54... 
they became furious and ground their teeth at him. Beginning at 54 through the rest of the chapter, Luke wants to show us the contrast between those who are fighting against the Holy Spirit, resisting the Holy Spirit, and those who are filled or full of the Holy Spirit. And what Luke really wants to do here is more than just document the murder of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. He wants to use the death of Stephen to touch our lives, to inspire us, to motivate us, to basically say, if you and I are open to the filling of the Spirit and to being full of the Spirit, there's nothing we can't do. We can be supernatural. In fact, let me even say this. We live in a world today that is fascinated, captivated with superheroes, right? Do you realize that the Bible is teaching, because Stephen was an ordinary person, put on his pants just like we do, one leg at a time, as they say. Do you realize that when we watch how Stephen navigated his death, that was superhuman. That, that, was, a, that was a super person because he was operating supernaturally under the enablement, the empowerment, the equipping, and the energizing of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly the way God wants us to operate every day, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be equipped by the Holy Spirit, to be enabled by the Holy Spirit, to be energized by the Holy Spirit. So Luke points out in verse 54 that this group of men, again, the religious leaders of Israel, are in a fit of unrestrained rage and anger. Think about it. They're seething. They're angry. I mean to the point where they can't control their anger because it's only through the power of the Spirit that we can control our anger and our wrath. That's why the Bible tells us to be filled with the Spirit and that the fruit of the Spirit, one of those fruit is self-control or self-restraint. These men did not have any restraint. They were unrestrained in their emotions. Their emotions of anger and, and bitterness and wrath all boiled over against Stephen. Yet in contrast, notice the first two words of verse 55, but Stephen. You know, many times in the Bible we point out how it will come along and say, but God... Well, this is sort of a similar one because Stephen would not be able to do what he's going to do in the rest of this chapter if it wasn't for God the Holy Spirit. The only reason he can say and do things like he's going to do them as he's dying is because of the supernatural enablement of the Holy Spirit. And again, Luke wants us to get that. That if this man was bludgeoned and beaten, and bloody, and bones broken all over his body, and he could handle that situation in the grace that he handled it in, God is saying, then what could you and I do when we go through our day, first of all, complaining and griping about much lesser things that we go through, and not being able to handle it as well as Stephen because we've resisted the Holy Spirit. So first of all, you see that there's this composure that Stephen has because of the Holy Spirit that these other men do not have. See the contrast? Unrestrained 
composed and calm. And I believe Stephen knew exactly what was coming. I really do. I, I believe he knew what was coming, and yet he wasn't sitting there, you know, freaking out and going to pieces and, you know, screaming to God, God, why me? And God, I'm such a young man, and I've got the best years of my life ahead of me. Why, why do I have to lay down? None of that. You know why? Because he was full of the Holy Spirit. And he was totally resting in the plan and purpose of God because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's another evidence that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. When we rest in whatever plan and purpose God has for our life, no matter what it is, even if he calls us to suffer or die in this case, a premature death, as we would say. Another thing that the Holy Spirit will enable us to do is direct our vision. Notice it says, full of the Holy Spirit, verse 55, and he was looking intently where? Toward heaven and seeing the glory of God. He wasn't looking around at all the people that was getting ready to stone him and kill him. His vision was toward heaven. It was toward the Lord. And he was totally fixated and captivated with heavenly things. Not what was going on on earth. Oh, so often we get caught up in earthly things that we forget about who's ruling and heaven and all of that. Not Stephen. Think of the verses that Paul shares in Colossians 3. Seek those things which are above. Set your affection on things above, not things on the earth. That's what Stephen was doing. Where was he looking? Looking to God. Looking toward heaven and the reality of heaven. And he saw the splendor and beauty of God. He's getting ready to experience the ugliest moment of his earthly life. What's he captivated and fixated on? The ugliness of the scene around him? No. He's captivated by the beauty of his God. Whoa. Why? How, how can he do that? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if Stephen can do it, you and I can do it. And then I love this, verse 55 at the end. He saw also Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Why is that significant? Because every other passage where Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God, what's he doing? He's not standing. He's what? He's sitting. Why is Jesus now standing? I think it's very clear. He's getting ready to welcome and receive his dear servant into heaven. He, he's getting ready to tell Stephen, well done, good and faithful servant. And because Stephen was willing to stand up for Jesus, Jesus was going to stand up for Stephen. And Jesus will do the same thing in our lives as well. Every time you and I put ourselves out there and we stand up for him, we're never standing alone. Jesus is going to stand with us and stand up for us. And I love this too. I think also by being captivated by the vision of heaven and the glory and beauty of God and seeing Jesus stand up for him. Notice, again, the Holy Spirit is enabling, enabling him to see things that he would never be able to see otherwise because that's what the Holy Spirit does too. He opens our eyes. But I think he's also realizing in this vision that he's seeing that these religious leaders aren't the one in control. Jesus is. He's the authority of the universe. 
And it's not like what's happening to Stephen is taking Jesus by surprise, like he's standing up there and he's going, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? No, he's standing there because it's, it's a picture of him being in total control of what's going on everywhere in his universe. And not just with Stephen, but with you and I every day. There's nothing that catches Jesus by surprise. There's nothing that comes into our lives that Jesus says, I didn't see that coming, or I did not equip them or enable them or give them the power to navigate or deal with it. No, Jesus has given us everything. What's Psalm 23, 1 say again? The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. We are complete in him, Colossians 2.10. So then, Stephen says in verse 56, look, it's the word behold. It's, it's a word of wonder. Stephen's like, don't you guys see what I'm seeing? Doesn't that remind you of the story in the Old Testament of Elisha's servant? His servant sees all the Syrian army surrounding him and Elisha, and he gets all upset and fearful, and he runs to the prophet Elijah. He says, what are we going to do? And Elisha just starts praying, God, open his eyes. And the Lord opened his eyes, and he saw the chariots of fire surrounding them, a heavenly, angelic army. See, God, through the Holy Spirit, wants to open up our eyes to the real realities. See, I personally, I don't believe that, that the Lord is far away. The Bible says the Lord's near. He's close. I don't believe heaven's far away. I believe it's just in another dimension. I believe that this spirit world is not some distant thing. I think it's right here around us. It's just we can't usually see it. But God wants to open our eyes to that spirit world, good and bad, to help us navigate life. And that's what Stephen was doing here. It says he saw, notice, the heavens opened. The door of heaven was being opened for Stephen. The gate of heaven was being opened. Why? Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and Stephen had placed his faith in Jesus as his personal Savior, and so the gates of heaven were open for him. And the Son of Man, again, standing at the right hand of God the Father. Notice then, in this passage of Scripture, while all this is happening to Stephen, you have the identification of the entire Trinity, you have obviously the Holy Spirit, you have Jesus, and you have God the Father. It's like they're all there, and they're all going to be there for us as well, because they all love us, and they all care about us. I think he uses the term son of man because, again, that's what Daniel used as the one who was going to come and one day set up an everlasting kingdom on earth. But he's also using that phrase to remind his audience, you didn't kill Jesus. He's ruling and reigning right now. He's not waiting till he comes back and literally reigns over a visible, physical kingdom. Oh, no, no. He's reigning over his universe right now. And he's in charge. Not you. I'm not a victim here of what you're doing to me. If God didn't want this to happen, it wouldn't happen because he's the son of man. He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. He's the one who conquers every enemy. That's who our Jesus is. So they covered their ears, which is what they've been doing up to this point, shouted with a loud voice, verse 57, and rushed at him with one intent. And what was that intent? Kill Stephen. Think about it. The religious leaders of Israel want to kill this man. And all he's doing is standing up. 
for his God. When they had driven him out of the city, verse 58, which can I tell you, that's ironic. Why did they want to drive him out of the city? Because if they stoned him in the city, that would, his, they would defile it. Like, yeah, because you're not going to defile anything by murdering this young man outside the city. You know, God won't hold that against you because you, you at least had the courtesy to take him outside the walls. Come on. And it says they began to stone him. Folks, I don't know whether you've ever studied, like, crucifixion. I don't know whether you've ever studied ancient stoning. It's a horrific way to die. I mean, literally, you are encircled by people who are picking up rocks, and I mean just wailing them at you. And I don't know if you've ever been hit with a rock before. I have. It doesn't feel good. And I'm not talking a big rock that some, you know, full-grown man is necessarily thrown at me. I'm talking about just a small rock. The only comparison I have in my life is when I played baseball, I got beaned. And I know what an 85, 90-mile-an-hour fastball hitting my body feels like, and it doesn't feel good. So you, can you imagine 100 or 150 fastballs coming at you, hitting every part of your body, breaking bones all over your body, crushing your skull, blood everywhere, brutalized. I mean, terrible, right? So you would think that Stephen, at this point, would not have the wherewithal to, to be able to say or do anything, right? Wrong. Because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he is being enabled through the Holy Spirit to do what he could never do on his own. I get that tonight. I want you to know I stand before you as a testimony of the power of the Holy Spirit. Because about an hour and a half ago, Nicole tell you, I look green. I came in very weak. And I, if somebody would have said, you're going to get up today and speak on Wednesday night. I said, no way. I mean, I was good through most of the day, but this afternoon I, I got hit. And I just went down. And uh, I was like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. But obviously I had people praying for me and people ministering to me back there in the green room. And I got to tell you, I think just watching and listening to you all worship tonight, it brought healing to my life. Because worship not only is our weapon and our witness, it also heals us. So I want you to know, the Holy Spirit can do the same thing in your life. He can take us way beyond what we could ever do on our own. So notice verse 59. They continued to stone Stephen while he prayed I don't know about you, but I got a question whether I would be in the mindset to pray when I'm being stoned to death. But again, we can't judge that because I'm telling you, I've seen it. The Holy Spirit gives us grace for everything, including dying grace. And I've been, as a pastor, in hospitals and, and nursing homes and even the homes of people who have passed away through 39 years of ministry. And I've seen all kinds of different people pass on into glory or not into glory. And there's quite a contrast between how a Christian dies and how an unbeliever dies. And this man had a supernatural grace to be able to navigate this point where you and I would think, how can he do it? That's why you and I, we can't question 
when we hear of even a Christian or anybody suffering some kind of horrific death or experience because we don't know the difference that the Holy Spirit has made in their life to navigate it. Did you ever think that the Holy Spirit could lessen the pain and not make it so bad? Because he's God, he can do anything, right? And so as they continued to stone Stephen, he prayed, and notice what he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Here Stephen is in full assurance of what death means for him, that he immediately is going right to glory and Jesus is going to welcome him. That should be our assurance as well. And isn't it interesting that one of the other aspects of being filled with the Spirit that we see from Stephen here is he following the example of his Lord Jesus. Because you remember what Jesus prayed when he was on the cross? Father, into your hands I commit my what? Spirit. And Stephen's doing the same thing. God, I believe that heaven is real. I believe it's as real as what I'm experiencing here. And I'm not focused on what's happening to me and how it's happening, all that. I'm focused on my future glory. I'm looking past the present pain to the glory and to the joy that's set before me. And his Lord did the same thing. The book of Hebrews says, who for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. That's what Stephen's doing. That's what Stephen's doing. And then he fell to his knees and cried out with a loud voice. I think that even is evidence of the Holy Spirit. Would a normal person be able to have any kind of voice at all at this point? No. And yet the Holy Spirit is enabling Stephen not only to speak, but to speak loudly and with authority at the most horrific time of his life. It's also an expression of deep emotion. And what's he say here? Oh, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, keep extending grace to them. Keep giving them a chance to get right with you. Notice he doesn't pray, I forgive them, or say, I forgive them. You know why? I believe he already had. And he doesn't even ask God to forgive them. He simply says, don't allow what they're doing to me to shut off your grace so that at some time down the road, if their heart turns to you, you will receive them. Don't let this that they've done in their life take them too far. And we know that's true. But what a prayer to pray when you're being bludgeoned and stoned to death. And then he says this. When he had said this, he died. The word literally means he fell asleep. Because that's the way God wants us to view our death as a follower of his, that it speaks of rest and peace. And think again about the contrast. There's very few ways to die that would be more horrific than the way Stephen died. 
And yet, in the midst of their rage and their unrestrained wrath and anger and all that they're doing to try to eliminate him and murder him and get him out of the way, here he is, just falling asleep, falling into the arms of his Jesus, who's going to receive him into the everlasting habitations. I think I've shared this with you before. That's why the word cemetery means a place of sleep. And you know who first started to use that word? Christians. Before that word was used, the word was graveyard. That doesn't have the same connotation, does it? Graveyard. When Christians came along, they realized, no, no, no. There's hope in death. There's hope through death. There, there's more out there. So, so this isn't a graveyard. This is a place of sleep. We're just, our physical bodies are just sleeping here until Jesus resurrects our physical bodies from this place. But we're already with him. Now, one other thing that we'll set up, <clears throat> excuse me, set up next week and the week after that I just want to take note of tonight. Who's in the audience that's witnessing all this? Verse 58, a man by the name of Saul. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, we read, Saul agreed completely with killing him. Who was present? Saul. So we're going to talk about him in the next couple of weeks. Because, again, not only are we at a transition point as far as the church making a break from just being an extension of Judaism to now we're moving away from Peter and some of the early apostles being the, sort of the center of what God is doing and not that God is going to stop working through them. And now God is going to draw his attention next week toward a young man named Philip. I hope you'll come back because this is a fascinating chapter on Philip. And then in chapter 9 comes the conversion of Saul. So some great weeks coming up in the story of Acts. What a difference the Spirit of God can make. I hope you believe that tonight. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight for the, the power of your Holy Spirit, for the presence of your Holy Spirit for the provision of your Holy Spirit. God, may we truly believe by faith that there is nothing, nothing or no one that we can't navigate or deal with or what situation or circumstance we can't go through when we are enabled, empowered, energized, and equipped by the Holy Spirit. Stephen is one of the greatest examples of that. In the most horrific time of his life, in the darkest, most painful time of his life, he was letting your spirit in the driver's seat. And the way he died, how he died, was such a testimony and witness to the power of your spirit. What he said and how he said it, same thing. So God, may we be strengthened and take encouragement of, from this chapter tonight. May we go forth from this place or from those who are watching from their homes tonight, just, again, energized and empowered and enabled and equipped by the Holy Spirit of God. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. We'll see you next week.